Democracy depends upon the citizens of the democracy having a certain ability to empathize with other citizens. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for American Values in the Age of Hyperpartisanship, a special evening with David Blankenhorn. David is an award-winning New York Times bestselling author. There's 14 books that he's authored or co-edited. And David has been doing bridge-building work for many years. He's the founder of the American Values Coalition, which you'll hear him talk about in this episode. And by the way, this is one of our throwback programs. So after David joined us in 2015, he went on to co-found Braver Angels, where he currently serves as president. Braver Angels is one of our favorite partner bridge building organizations. Their mission is to bring Americans together to bridge the partisan divide and strengthen our democratic republic. Sounds very familiar. No wonder we love them so much. Braver Angels does such great work with individuals and families and organizations and on college campuses, etc., etc. They hold debates and workshops. They have a book club and a podcast. The list goes on and on. So please check them out. Finally, about David, I'd like to thank David for introducing me to the term exhausted majority, which I have now decided is my new political affiliation. Who's with me, you guys? Don't be surprised if this becomes our new favorite hashtag at the Village Square, which reminds me, find us on social media. We'd love to connect with you. All right, let's get on with it. We have a familiar voice back to facilitate this program. Bill Maddox of the James Madison Institute and of the Village Square Board of Directors. One of my favorite things about Bill facilitating is how he always manages to bring laughter to serious topics, and this program is no exception. Before we get started, thanks to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free. During this series, we'll be airing our new fall programs, plus some favorite past programs like this one. So thanks for joining us on this journey, and thanks to Florida Humanities for making it possible. So let's get to it. Here's Bill Maddox. Tonight, we really do have a special treat, and it's not just because he went through heroic efforts to come here, and we are so thankful that he did that. But uh, David Blankenhorn is someone that I have known for, gosh, 25-plus years and is one of the people in in this space where we are talking about questions about how to resolve differences and to work together that I most respect. Um, he's been a really a mentor and a friend to me for many years. 
David is an award-winning uh, New York Times best-selling author, has written a number of books and collaborated on many others. He heads a think tank in Manhattan uh, called the Institute for American Values, has been there for, gosh, 25, 30 years now. And what is really interesting about his think tank is that it has this penchant for bringing together people who you wouldn't normally expect to break bread and share ideas with one another. David is enormously gifted in a lot of different ways. But one of the things that I that I most appreciate about him, and I think you will, is that he has an uncanny knack for bringing together people and helping them find common ground, work through differences, find areas of agreement. So he's just an all-around good guy and a friend, and I think someone that you'll enjoy uh, hearing from tonight. So without further ado, I'll ask David to come and join me on stage. After that introduction, we should just stop now. <laughs> All right. So to, uh, 25 plus years or so ago, I was a 20 something newcomer to Washington DC trying to make my way in the city. Was working, I had worked for a, a Democratic uh, senator from Georgia, Sam Nunn, that many of you probably know. And one day I get an invitation to an event that's being held at the Children's Defense Fund. And it's being sponsored by a guy named David Blankenhorn and his group, the Institute for American Values. I had heard nothing, or knew nothing about any of these people, but was delighted to get this invitation and found the topic and discussion intriguing. And so I go and I uh, listen intently to the conversation. And then afterwards, I make the mistake of approaching one of the speakers. And so I'm now going to let David, we're just going to go ahead and get it out of the way right off the bat. I'm going to now let you tell the Leave it to Beaver story. All right. So there was a woman on the panel, and she was just filled with intensity. And at the time, I don't know if you remember this, but at the time, if you wanted to make fun of tradition or the traditional family, you would say, well, this is not the days of leave it to beaver. Or, or sometimes you would use the term Ozzie and Harriet. You would say, this is not Ozzie and Harriet, you know. And this woman would say, after all, leave it to beaver was not a documentary. This was, a, Bill was just sitting there the whole time. And at the end of the thing, he, he walked up to her and said, in this kind of sweet southern thing, he said, well, gee, I really respect a lot of things you said, but I just really didn't like you criticizing the beaver. <laughs> was great and the tension broke you know because she was oh gosh and I felt the same way about the whole thing you know I I, I liked the show and it it, it it was an old show even then and so anyway that's the that's how we met well you can imagine she was rolling her eyes but out of the corner of my eye I caught David's attention and I had not yet spoken to him but after that I realized that I had at least a potential friend, and so we struck up a conversation and from there have gone on over the course of the last 25 years to collaborate on a number of things. We did some really fun focus groups. I don't know if you remember this, back in Baltimore right. um, with, with Barbara Defoe Whitehead. Right. Um, have spoken on some panels together at various uh, events and whatnot. He's been very generous in inviting me to any number of different conferences and programs that he's held in New York City. And as I mentioned, David is really in some ways kind of a big brother type or mentor of sorts to me. So basically what I thought we would do to begin tonight's program is to test and see just how well David has taught me. 
Okay, so we're sitting here. Liz has given us kind of parlor furniture. So we're going to play an old parlor game called 20 Questions. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to first ask, I'm going to first ask David a set of 10 questions. And mind you, he has not seen these questions. I I debated the whole time for the last several months as we've been preparing for this evening. I debated whether I should share these with him. And finally, to this afternoon, I, when we got together after he got into town, I said, here, I want, I want you to see the questions so that you won't be caught off guard. He was like, no, 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 I don't want to see them. So I'm going to ask him a, a set of ten different questions, and his responsibility to, will be to answer the way he thinks I would say that he would answer. Okay. <laughs> And so we'll just see how well I, he has taught me, and we'll go through these questions. And I think what this will do is this will give you guys a sense of the terrain that we hope to cover this evening. We'll go back through these ten questions a second time, and we'll give David an opportunity to explain his answer. Because the first time through, the only thing you get to do is to answer either correctly, in which case I will be happy to give you a... or incorrectly... So I hope that you do well here, David. (laughs) And so here's our first question, David. Most political disagreements represent a clash between what? Between competing goods or between good and evil? Competing goods. Which of the following statements is more likely to arise from polarized thinking? What you say is wrong You're so personally flawed that you have no business saying anything at all. You're so personally flawed, you have no business saying anything at all. Okay, at this point, I need to pause and give a little advertisement here and really a thank you. Nathan Morse, where are you? In the house, back here. Nathan Morse is a high school senior at Lincoln High School. He's part of our Teen Square group. And he helped me put together the PowerPoint presentation for tonight's program, and I thought did a magnificent job of finding. Uh, I asked, I asked for Teen Square assistance, as I'm sure most of you know, because I am a technological uh, Neanderthal, know nothing about how to use technology. But I also wanted to acquaint my younger friends with uh, recording artists like Simon and Garfunkel, and I thought Nathan chose an especially good picture of uh, Paul Simon and, Gar- and, and Art Garfunkel here. All right, so here's your question, David. Number three, which Simon and Garfunkel activity represents a better use of time for an engaged citizen? Sitting on a sofa on a Sunday afternoon or going to a candidate's debate? Going to a candidate's debate. I can't remember the damn song. I I remember the one about the candidate's debate, but I don't remember the song that the first one came from. All right, here we go. Which is more important in resolving political disagreements and building political consensus? Good facts or good propositions? Propositions. <laughs> All right. During the 1980s, why did public urination on New York City streets become a serious problem? Was it because no one listened to their grandmothers or because Reagan closed down all the bathrooms? <laughs> no one listened to their grandmothers. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you like 
this trip down there's memory a, lane? This is really a backstory here. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you a chance to tell it. If we want today's third graders, third graders, to become card-carrying members of the Village Square someday, what character trait should we especially seek to cultivate in them? Empathy or modesty? Empathy. Modesty is kind of close, but modesty is okay. good. Yeah, but we'll talk more. Okay, if Alexis de Tocqueville were alive today, which of Joseph and Rose Kennedy's children would he say contributed the most to democracy in America? John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, or Teddy Kennedy? Mm, Eunice Kennedy Shriver. So glad you said that. Okay, which of the followings? Okay, by the way, for those of you who don't know, David, though he lives now in Manhattan, grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. So we'll find out more about Jackson in just a minute. Which of the following state capitals is more like George Bailey's idyllic hometown, Bedford Falls, Tallahassee, Florida, where you are <coughs> today, or Jackson, Mississippi, where you grew up? Tallahassee. <laughs> okay. Over the course over the course of a lifetime, how much will a thrifty person spend? More than the average person or less than the average person? More than the average person. <laughs> and finally, my favorite question of all. According to the Village Voice, what was Kurt Cobain's all-time favorite sitcom? Leave was it, it One Beaver. Day at a Time or Leave, it, leave to it, it to Beaver? So, so All Warren, right. I think it's time we had a talk with the boys. <laughs> All, right. All right. So that was very good. You did very nicely. It looks like I've learned uh, more than I probably should have from you. But let's go back through these now um, and take them one at a time if we can and give you an opportunity to explain more in a more serious way about some of the things um, that these questions have raised. The first one was most political disagreements represent a clash between what? Between competing goods or between good and evil? You said competing goods. So help us understand, because this in many ways is kind of the essence, is it not, of hyperpartisanship that we come to many of the questions that we debate in our day imagining that this is a conflict between good and evil, and yet you're, you're suggesting that what we really ought to do is to see them as competing goods. Help us understand this. Well, I, I love the quote by Solzhenitsyn who said that the line between good and evil doesn't run between you and me, but through the center of every human heart. Mm. So it's not usually when we're arguing about these questions – it's not so much that uh, you're on one side and I'm on another, is so much as that we're, each of us have internal, we're internally conflicted. We have doubts inside ourselves about it. And so there's an internal issue of the culture war, but also it's, I think, not, not recognized as much as it should be in today's hyper-partisan discussion. But also, more broadly, you see, if you think that See, if you think that the argument is between the right and the wrong, the good and the bad, then that's one way of seeing it. And if I have the right answer, and let's say you have the wrong answer, 
what is my relationship to you? I should probably try to give you the facts so that you'd be more, I should give you more information so that I could bring you around to the correct point of view. Maybe I should make you feel ashamed for being stupid and not knowing the correct answer or something. You know, if, but really the way I think the way the world really is, is that usually your your argument represents a good. You're, you're standing for a good. You have a good. There's something good about what you're saying, and there's something good about what I'm saying, and those things are in tension with one another. So it's not that you're advocating this evil position, and I'm advocating the virtuous position. You have an argument about a good. I have an argument about a good. They're in conflict. You know, you want to be strict. With lawbreakers, you lock them up and put them in jail. Why? Because you believe in justice. You believe in keeping people, criminals off the street. These are good things. I'm, I want maybe to be more lenient because I believe in the power of uh, forgiveness and, you know, people changing their ways and so forth. These are good values, forgiveness and second chances and so on. So it's not like, so I, I think that to me, Maybe at the very heart of at least how I try to think about public discussion is that we today, if you turn on the TV or you listen to the public discussion or you listen to the politicians talk, you would think that it's a conflict between the good and the bad, the right and the wrong. I'm fighting for this and these people are fighting for to make America worse. Whereas really, in reality... They're competing goods that are in tension with one another, and it requires careful engagement to sort that out. All right. Well, let me tease this out further because this is interesting. But surely you're not suggesting that all public questions represent a clash between ideas or propositions that are equally good, are you? And, and are you suggesting, uh, conversely, that, that, that there is never a conflict between good and evil? And that it's always a situation where we're faced with competing goods. No, it's not always a situation, but it's usually a situation. Okay. You know, I was for years, I was involved in the whole debate about gay marriage. And I, I came to believe that on the one hand, there was this desire for on the part of gay and lesbian people to be accepted as full members of the community. And on the other hand was this desire to preserve the traditional form of marriage in the interest of children and, and, and in the interest of the good that this traditional form was doing. And I believed and still believe that both of those are good things. Those are good. Both of those are good ideas. Now how one reconciles them is difficult and it requires hard work, but I, you know, would there be an example of a totally black and white situation? Well, you know, sure, there are examples of one could think of, you know, violent acts against other people or horrible forms of bigotry and prejudice. Of course, there are evil exists. I mean, I believe in original sin and evil and all that, but I, I just, I think we'd be a lot better off if we saw public discussion as arguments more between competing goods than of right versus wrong. The, the, the famous philosopher who said this better than anyone else is a guy named Isaiah Berlin. 
And uh, he had a tremendous influence on my life. And he he writes about uh, this over and over again. So if you want to get the philosopher on this, it's it's Berlin. It strikes me. And, that- and by the way, it, it this is an essentially. This is one of the differences, I think, between liberalism and conservatism as political philosophies. Liberalism, at its best, embraces the tension of goods, goods in conflict. Conservatism tends to be more like, more believing that there is a hierarchy that's all coherent. But but would, But would you not concede that there is, in the quest for trying to resolve these kinds of difficult questions, ultimately an attempt to try to value, to to recognize that one good may have greater value in a particular situation than another. Sure. Well, that's the debate. My friend here wants to lock him up and throw away the key. I want to, uh, you know, free the, you know, let people out of jail. So we have an argument. We have a discussion about this and we, we, we each have facts to break, but it's not like either one of us is arguing for something evil. That, that's really my only point. One of the things that strikes me as I'm listening to you is that there even could be examples where one thinks of uh, of the public conflict as a clash between good and evil, where it is nevertheless useful to put this principle into practice. And let me give you an example and tell me if you think this fits. With the question of abortion, there would be many people on the pro-life side who would see that that issue as a clash between good and evil. And they would say in their minds that uh, abortion is murder and murder is evil. Okay, But it strikes me that even if one holds that view, it is nevertheless useful to at least consider the possibility of competing goods in this sense. That if you say to yourself, what is it if I am a pro-lifer? What is it that my opponents are seeking to do? And, and, and the answer would be, well, they're seeking to represent the interests of the woman. And they have a concern for her well-being. And it strikes me that even if one holds true to their belief that abortion is evil, they nevertheless ought to be cultivating a concern for that woman just as the pro-choice person would. Is that a a fair understanding? Yes, yes. That's why empathy is more important than modesty, by the way. Say that because we're going to get there in just a minute. All right, but let's go to this next question where we ask, which of the following statements is more likely to arise from polarized thinking? What you say is wrong or you're so personally flawed that you have no business saying anything at all. Uh, This was taken, as you probably recognize, from a recent uh, column that you wrote that I saw and I'm, and, and I'm just kind of curious to get your comment on the state of public discourse. And, and why is it that we have gravitated so quickly to this notion that some people just have no business even having a voice in the public discussion because they're so personally flawed that they have no business saying anything at all? Yeah, I, I just, it, it struck me like a thunderbolt because, uh, I, and, and I, I just, when you go home tonight and you, you start Paying, you start watching what people say on TV and so forth. Just see if you don't see this. More and more, it will not be simply your idea is wrong because of ABC. It will be you are wrong. In your person, you are wrong. You weren't born in this country. 
You, you aren't a citizen. Uh, you know, I had a friend, Michael Ignatieff, who was a politician in um, Canada, and he had been teaching in the U.S. for many years, and he went back to Canada. He became uh, leader of the Liberal Party in Canada, ran for uh, and, and lost, lost the election. And one of the reasons he lost was because they ran ads against him and the ads just said one thing. It said, Michael Ignatieff, just visiting. <laughs> Very devastating. Playing upon the fact that he had not lived in Canada for many years. He was teaching news. And he said, he told me, he said, it wasn't that they were disagreeing with my ideas. They said, I have no business being here at all. Now, if you go home, I just, just, just see if this is not right. More and more, this is what we see. It's not just your ideas are wrong. You have no, you shouldn't even be on the platform. You have, you know, you're a crook. You, your children are messed up. You're, you know, you, some, there's something wrong about you as a person that makes you, uh, why are you even saying anything is now the charge. And I had I had a personal experience with this. I testified at a at a at one of the famous uh, marriage trials in California, the so-called Prop Eight case in California. I was an expert witness, and I'll tell you, if you want an interesting experience, you do something like that, and you see what people say about you. And and no, I I mean, no one said, no one said, I disagree with this. Guy Blankenhorn because of A and B and C. I mean, literally, no one said that. But thousands of people at blogs and newspapers and TV said, this is a terrible person. He doesn't have qualifications. He's, he cheats. He's a terrible, you know, just in other words, you deny them standing personally. And I think it's a terrible tendency in our politics today, and we should make an effort, whenever we see that, we should just say, hey, no, that's not right. Back to the ideas. And, and by the way, this is something that I suspect may be easier for us to do here in Tallahassee than it might be for you in New York, just given the size of the communities and the familiarity yeah. that we have with people. And we'll get to that in just a little bit when we talk about um, idyllic towns in Bedford Falls and your fascination with uh, It's a Wonderful Life. But I want to turn now to the Simon Garfunkel question, which, by the way, was the only question that you answered incorrectly. I told you I can't remember the right. well, well, Explain this Okay, so here, so here was the question. Which Simon and Garfunkel activity represents a better use of time for an engaged citizen Sitting on a sofa on a Sunday afternoon, admittedly wasn't... Was that Mrs. Robinson? This is all from Mrs. Robinson. Oh. Okay? Um, sitting on a sofa, admittedly, was not a really great description of civic engagement. So I don't fault you for answering that. But I was surprised to hear you say, going to a candidate's debate... I was worried about that. Because I have heard you wax eloquently about debates about debates and about how horrible i hate debates uh, uh, so so please i don't yeah, but want you're to, just sitting on a I, sofa like watching leave it to beaver reruns i, I mean <laughs> I, I don't want to have a debate about this but tell us why you have so little confidence in debates as a means of helping to 
engender greater public understanding and 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 consensus because and that's why, why we, and, and why you have in your own work often charted a different path and describe for us how you have gone about setting up different conferences or programs that you've done that look anything that don't look anything like a debate yeah we try to do anything but debates debates are what got us into this mess i mean all we do is debate you know you take a position you defend your position no matter what come hell or high water you're just on your side no debates are uh debates are part of the problem uh we need less debate my uh, richard newhouse used to say that um it takes a lot of work to achieve disagreement I really love that. It takes a lot of work to achieve disagreement. If I'm disagreeing with you about something, it's easy just to say, oh, you know, here's my position and it's different than your position. But if we really want to achieve disagreement at the level of genuine integrity, we have to really engage one another. And part of knowing what we disagree about is clarifying what we agree about. We have to start with that. And it requires work. It requires both of us to put a positive effort into it, working together to figure out what we agree about and what we don't agree about. And it requires engagement and effort. And it, debate keeps you from achieving that goal by definition. Because debate just means that whatever you say, I'm going to try to rebut it. So debate prevents you from achieving disagreement. And what I think we need more of is that latter part of where we're actually trying not just to uh, station identification or making declarations or taking a pose for the camera or strutting around, you know, taking a position, uh, but actually achieving disagreement in this serious way that involves, uh, first and foremost, collaborating together in a joint activity. So there's no straw men in the room. There actually is just me and you, right? And we, we, in part of knowing where we disagree, it has to be built on the foundation of knowing where we agree. And often that you find that there's more in common than you might have thought when you begin the discussion, especially if I get to know you personally a little bit in the discussion. So that's why I think debates are the problem, not the solution. Uh, at the Institute, where the organization I run, we never have debates. We never have panel discussions where there's three different points of view. We always try to sit in a, you know, circle and we, we try to have conversation where we achieve disagreement. We, we say we put a proposition on the table. So somebody says, okay, here's the thesis that we're going to discuss. And then we, we, we discuss it in that way. I think any time we get away from the kind of crossfire, you know, the kind of that kind of crap you see on TV all the time, where this person has that point of view, that person has another point of view, you just got to throw all that out the window because all that does is get us into trouble. And you have to come up with it, and I think new models really. And the reason, one reason, I'm really happy to be here is because I believe that what you're doing here is such a new model. Very good, thank you. I appreciate the plug. I want to be sure. I mean, I want to be sure that that you're able to respond to a potential criticism that I can imagine arising, where someone's saying, "Okay, so this guy says he's not sure about good and evil. It's all competing goods, and doesn't really want to have debates because somebody might get their feelings hurt, and just wants them to all sit around in a circle and sing kumbaya." You're you're, you're not suggesting that we 
that we surrender strong positions or that we acknowledge disagreements or that we always strive to try to cut differences and never hold to um, moral propositions, you're just simply saying that there's a manner that goes about this. And so I'm curious to give, I want to give you a chance to respond to criticisms that might come that way, but, but I especially want you to then help us understand beyond the village square other models. You mentioned crossfire. Are there models from morning TV or elsewhere that you can think of that might be uh, more like the, what you want to see happen than the debate format that we so often see? What do you think, for example, of Morning Joe there in your backyard? I think they do a pretty good job more than most shows uh, because Joe and Mika, two different political parties, they actually listen to one another and um, they try to have a they try to have a conversation. So I, that's my favorite morning show. But most so, 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 most of the TV and the you know most of the most political discussion goes in a somewhat different direction these days. Okay. All right, let's move on. Which is more important in resolving political disagreements and building public consensus, good facts or good propositions? Not surprisingly, given the name of your longtime publication, Propositions, you answered good propositions. I trust you're not suggesting in any way that facts aren't important, but I think I remember you once saying facts are overrated. Well, give, we're, give, we're, give, we're awash in facts. I mean, facts are just... Facts are everywhere, and uh, the the belief that somehow the person who's in possession of the most number of facts is the person who knows the most is completely wrong. I mean, just think of your own life, right? You, we all know people who are just full of factual information who couldn't walk in out of the rain. So the idea that somehow the facts by themselves are dispositive on important discussions. Uh, let's just call them necessary but not sufficient. Uh, because every question you ask, uh, there's a wonderful philosopher, I forget who said this, he said, um, uh, the worst sin is, is to ask the question poorly. That's great. The best way to have a discussion is to ask the question well. Not to say everybody present the facts. You you have your facts, I have my facts, and we're just going to trade facts because that's not going to get us very far. Uh, and, and, and you're really not going to get very far talking to people who believe that somehow this is all going to be settled by comparing the facts. Facts are important. Don't get me wrong. Of course they're important. And there is an objective reality out there and trying to understand it and data and all these things are important, but given us humans, given how we think, given how we live in social groups, asking the question well is the best starting point for something powerful to happen. And that's why I say propositions. That's just another way of saying, what's the question that we find interesting that we can work on together. Because then we're involved in a, a collaborative uh, effort to answer a question. Will facts be brought to bear? Sure they will. Sure, people are going to bring up facts. Facts are good in their place. But the most important thing to do is to figure out the question that we all agree is important. Okay. Very good. 
All right, I want to get to one of my favorite uh, questions that, again, takes us down memory lane. During the 80s, why did public urination on New York streets become a serious problem? And you answered correctly that it was not because Reagan closed down all the bathrooms, but because no one listened to their grandmothers. Explain that whole story and some of you the know, writings that you did back then about this phenomenon. Well, this was a long time ago. I don't know if you all even remember this, but there was a, there was a time, I think this was in the late 80s, there was a time when there was a... There was some kind of concern that you know people people were kind of people were urinating in the streets, and some people wrote uh, it was in California some of the some cities in California and I, and somebody said well it's because of President Reagan because it, there's no more public accommodations and so what are people going to do and so I was young and full of beans and I wrote an article for the Los Angeles Times that said look. You know, President Reagan may be a terrible guy, but he cannot make me pee in the streets. <laughs> Only I can do that. And and so I thought, you know, it was more just, you know, the, the, the values we have as a culture and a society and as individuals are more important than whether or not there's a nearby toilet. I think I, I, think I might have shifted in the years since I wrote that to to I still believe basically the same thing, but I might give a little weight now to more the importance of yes, because living in New York City now, it is very important to have access to to the, the to facilities. But ultimately, whether or not I think I was just trying to take a shot at people who just wanted to blame a politician for a social behavior. You know. Well, this is this is what I was hoping yeah. that you would pull out of that story is just because it seems so common in our day and and and, and yeah, so familiar that no matter what the problem is, those that are critics of the president or those that are critics of the governor just blame those, him. Yeah, yeah, just and, blame and, him. And, and, and it's kind of and sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's us. The it's we the people. You know who are who are doing this. So good. All right, now I want to get to this third grade question. If we want uh, today's third graders to become card-carrying members of the Village Square someday, what character trait should we especially seek to cultivate in them? You correctly answered empathy. And it reminded me of an article that you wrote about an experience that happened to you when you were in third grade in Jackson, Mississippi. Tell us that story and then why it inspired you now to make a public plea for greater empathy. Oh, I'm in the third grade. It's 1963, and the schools in Jackson, Mississippi, had an essay contest for third graders. And the topic was helping others. And I worked so hard on this essay called Helping Others, and my essay won. I won the essay contest. And I said that you should always help other people, even if they were different from you. And you should try to make everybody your friend and not just play with certain people and you share your toys with them. And just because they may look different than you and talk different from you doesn't mean that you shouldn't make them all your friends. And this won the essay contest. And wasn't I proud? And my parents were proud. And they got a letter from the school board. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Blankenhorn, each semester... A student from the white schools is chosen to have his essay exhibited uh, at the at downtown at the central office, and they were so proud, and I was so proud. And it was only it was only later that I looked at that letter, and I I just ah hmm, this was just the white students. Mississippi Jackson schools were half African American at the time. 
So but, but make were, them but all your segregated. friends. But it was segregated schools. That you weren't mixed at this point. Oh, this was during the era of segregation. Yeah, yeah. These were the white schools. That, sorry. These so, were just the white schools that participated in this contest. So then I'm thinking, well, then as an older child and as an adult, I'm thinking, well, golly, you know, make them all your friends. Don't, does it matter if they look different or talk different than you? And I won the prize, you know, but then what a, what a kind of, falseness in the whole thing, right? Because it was the opposite. It was demonst- It was not a demonstration. of. It was the opposite of helping others. It was the opposite of we're all in this together, you know, to, to have this system where only the white children even got to compete. But at the time, as just a little kid, you know, this just kind of passed me by. So it just seems so ironic, I mean, or just weird that I would just, this would happen to me. And especially since I was so proud of having been so empathetic in my essay. So I still think about that. And I think that my po- the politician, I've been lately on this, just a spree of reading books about uh, Lincoln. You know, Southerners really were interested in the Civil War. So Lincoln, I, th- I think one of his most profound qualities was empathy. I really think that's true. I mean, and, and so I just think the idea that you can sincerely put yourself in the other person's shoes, not just as an intellectual matter, but really feel it at a deep level. You, you, you can feel how they feel about something. That's empathy. Feeling into the other's situation. It's incredibly hard. Obviously, I and everybody involved in that essay contest in 1963 egregiously failed the test. But it's a thing we should try to do because without the quality of empathy, um, you're much less likely to want to have the kind of engagement. Because otherwise, why bother, really? You know, why not just, you, you know, why not just, why not just, Point out why you're wrong, and that should be enough. You know, just give you a little high-minded lecture that might enlighten you, and that ought to be enough for the evening. But you know, this other thing, empathy. Democracy depends upon the citizens of the democracy having a certain ability to empathize with other citizens. Or otherwise, the engagement that democracy requires will not take place. And I think today we are, in some ways, getting to the point where that engagement is simply not taking place. We're just shouting and just kind of angry shouting as opposed to actual engagement. And uh, I really worry about this. I don't know. I just think it's a very serious problem, and I think part one of the one of the things to do is to prize as a society the value of empathy a bit more. So your uh, advice to me then, as a husband and a father, is that in the same way, and as a citizen, is then in the same way that I am constantly reminded of my need to empathize with my wife or with my children that you're suggesting I need to do that with my fellow citizen, perhaps especially those that may have a different perspective or disagree with me as my wife and children so often do. Yeah. And that's, and that's, 
uh, you know, Bill, legitimately, we, we and you know, I think that one of the reasons we've been friends is that I I I see that in you, and I know that you're trying for that, and I, I admire it, and I you know, all right, it's it's, but. Well, I think that's I think that is the basis of it in some ways. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, you you mentioned the word democracy, and our next question is my favorite, the Tocqueville question, to which you correctly answered Eunice Kennedy Shriver. But before we get to it, I want you to talk a minute about civil society, because if you go to your website and you look up your organization's mission statement, it has. You know, the, the, the phrase civil society, like, held up high. And that your organization is all about promoting civil society. And so I'm interested in hearing you just explain that term and explain why you think it is so important. Yeah, our mission is to study and strengthen civil society. And by civil society, we mean the parts of life, the relationships and the institutions that exist between the government and the individual. So if you're just the individual person walking around with your rights and your ideas and your privileges, that's one thing. And if you're the government, the state, that's another thing. But in between, all that thick stuff in between, like people coming to voluntary organizations called Village Square to talk with one another, people going to houses of worship or going to father-daughter pancake breakfasts on Sunday morning or forming voluntary, what Tocqueville famously called voluntary associations or getting married or, you know, forming uh, groups and bonds as citizens that aren't part of the state. The state may have some regulatory influence, but basically it's not something that the state creates. And it's not something that the, it's just at the individual level. It's all that stuff in between. And the great writers of American, the American experiment, uh, I would say first and foremost Tocqueville, but also the great writers, liberals and conservatives over the years have time and time again emphasized this as the, one of the most remarkable facts about America. Tocqueville famously said, uh, if you want to do something uh, in France, you go to the state. If you want to do something in England, you go to a man of rank. If you want to do something in America, you form an association. It's just great. Just great. So we, we, we that's the that's the way you know we we want to we we move out west where the you know start new states we form these uh, you know little little groups to help survive so this this voluntary acts these voluntary relationships and groups it's the stuff of American democracy. It's the kind of lifeblood of our. Uh, it, it occupies most of our lives, right? I mean, I mean, if you think about just how you spend your day, how many how many hours a day, unless you're an elected official, do you spend acting as an agent of the state? And 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 how many times are you just by yourself, just doing solitary? You, mostly, you're in these relationships that are in this middle stuff. If it's healthy, if these are vibrant relationships. Healthy relationships oriented to pro-social goals, you have a good society. You have a diverse society with all kinds of interesting things happening. If you don't have it, you're in trouble. 
And it's one area where I think a lot of liberals and conservatives can actually agree that this is an important area of society. And it's an area where we may be getting somewhat weaker as a society because um, we tend to be, we're tended to become a little bit more, um, the associations we join tend to be uh, online associations. These, you know, you send in $20, maybe your membership of a big organization, but to actually come out on a Tuesday night to go to face what, you know, what Robert Putnam calls face-to-face civil society. That's becoming maybe a bit rarer in the, in the U.S. and as, as the digital world mediates more and more. So, so it's important and families, probably the most important institution of civil society and our families in America are not in the shape that we would, I think, would want them to be in. So, Three cheers for civil society. This, in many ways, then explains why you share my appreciation for Eunice Kennedy Shriver, because no disrespect to her brothers. I mean, especially, I mean, you could pull out uh, JFK's famous quote of, uh, uh, ask not what you can do for your country. Yeah. You know, and and that's a great statement of the importance of civil society and of Robert Kennedy going to speak on the day that Martin Luther King was killed, going to black I mean, that was a very hard question. Or the great RFK quote where he talks about our GNP doesn't measure the the, the quality of our poetry and all that beautiful. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Eunice sees a problem and says, let's form an association, let's form an association and let's solve it. And here, after she's gone and for many years, as far as the eye can see, the Special Olympics is apt to live on global, uh, global in scope, uh, years and years of decades of patient work, not trying to grab credit. Uh, you have to admire this. Yeah. So I, you know, it's a hard thing to say, but I think in terms of, from a civil society point of view, I think you got to give it to her. Well, and here's what I have. I, I totally agree with you about the importance of civil society being something that liberals and conservatives ought to be able to agree on. And I guess one of the things that I've observed about Tallahassee, I've moved here, as you know, six, eight years ago or so, and I have just been struck by how rich the civil society is in this community and how commonplace it is for people to get involved in any number of groups and associations. In fact, tonight, our dinner tonight is uh, sponsored by Capital City Bank. And, 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 and the reason why you were correct in answering that Tallahassee is more like the idyllic Bedford Falls uh, than Jackson is because we have bank presidents that are nothing like uh, Potter from, <laughs> from It's a Wonderful Life. And, and let me give you a couple of illustrations. Several years ago, I volunteered to coach my son's Little League baseball team, not, so, not long after I moved to Tallahassee. Um, I had done that for all my older boys. I wanted to do it for him. I show up um, at the meetings to get my team, and they said, oh, by the way, we've got a young man who wants to assist you who has no family connections to any of the players on the team, which is common. Most of the teams were coached by dads and stuff. So the bank president's son, who's then 25 years old, uh, of Capital City Bank, signs up and is vo- my volunteer coach for the entire year, has no connection to any of the players. Lo and behold, I look out during the middle of a couple of the games, and the bank president and his wife have come to see a bunch of kids that they don't even know, probably, 
playing in their little league game because it's part of their community. At the end of the season, they offer to host a party for all of us to celebrate. Not long after that, I go to uh, Young Actors Theater where my kids have been involved in musical theater and whatnot. And lo and behold, the guy that's then the head of the board of directors of Young Actors Theater works for a different bank, but he's their board chairman. And as I got to know him and started talking to him, I was like, so how did you get involved with Young Actors? Was one of your kids or nieces or nephews part of? No, I, I they just happened to bank with me and I got interested in what they were doing. And I now volunteer as their board of directors. Now, I'm I'm. I'm willing to bet that if if I were to come and visit some of the banks in your town, uh, that Elizabeth Warren is quite uh, uh, quick to to talk about, you probably wouldn't see that level of personal engagement in the lives of ordinary people or in the life of a community. Is that fair? I don't know. You know, I don't know what I, – I, I answered Tallahassee compared to Jackson because in Jackson the race issue still is too paralyzing. It's still – has got everything so stymied, you know, and I don't know how you're, you know, I don't know about the race issue here in Tallahassee, but in Jackson, it, it, it stopped, you know, it, it, it retards a robust civic sphere because everything is still so retreated into segregated worlds. I, and, and when you get into a big place like New York City, I, I just don't know. I mean, we were talking before about what kind of place does, would Village Square be most successful in, and you were saying that you thought Tallahassee was a was a really good city for a thing like Village Square and what other cities around the country. I mean, it's a good thing. It's actually it's a great kind of Robert Putnam question. What are the cities or what are the communities in the country where you tend to have a robust civil society. I mean, this is the hallmark of America, so I'm sure there are plenty of places out there where you can find this, but where is it doing the best? Where is it under the most stress? Those are interesting research questions. I guess the thing that I've observed, just in comparison of this community to, say, Washington, D.C., which is probably more like New York than it is like Tallahassee, is that here, because of the size of the community and because of the rich community life that exists, you find people who probably have, and surely have, uh, significant philosophical, political, religious differences, nevertheless finding some way to find common ground, to enjoy each other as friends, even though they will disagree about very fundamental things. There seems to be a far more of that in this town than I ever remember in a place like D.C. and that I can only imagine it would just be hard it's because there would be such a tendency to to kind of gravitate toward those that think like you and you don't have an opportunity in some of the debate or discussion about ideas to really get to know people beyond just their ideas. Yeah. And and yeah. I, I don't know. The, the role of friendship in knitting community and in helping to bring about Civil society, I think, is extremely important. Yeah. All right, Liz, you've got some questions for us? David, can we govern our republic without political parties? If so, what does that look like? Of course, many of the founders were against parties. I don't know. That's a good question. I, I just I don't really feel qualified to give a very smart answer to it, though. <laughs> That's something I guess I'll have to go think about. 
parties are getting weaker. We're becoming less loyal to institutions generally, all institutions across the board. Loyalty to parties is declining, uh, along with loyalty to almost all institutions. But whether or not you could really get along without them. See, I, I, I'm a big believer. See, if you're, if you like civil society, you like authority. You like authoritative institutions. You can't just have everybody running around as, you know, radically disconnected individuals. People need to belong to associations and political parties are one of them. I don't know though. Okay. Liz, you want to give us another? So in terms of associations, what about the association of Coke sponsors in K-O-C-H, sponsors in Las Vegas. Is this civil society in action? I'm sorry, what's... I guess the Koch brothers is the reference. Is that correct? The the Koch brothers? Yes. Well, that is civil society. Um, but sure it is. And other people on other, in other parties uh, do much the same thing. And um, I, I believe that there should be more transparency about this and also believe in campaign finance regulations but the donors don't make those rules, or at least not explicitly. But yes, that would be an example of civil society. Look, the civil society is not all great. I mean, you can, you know, you know, if somebody wanted to go form a neo-Nazi party, that would also be an example of civil society too. But you know, be a civil society that we would disapprove of. Um, so there's nothing inherently good about all forms of voluntary associations. But uh, you want a society where a lot of interesting things are happening at that level. Let me interject a question here, and then we'll get another from Liz. On the question of civil society, are you of the opinion that if civil society were to grow and and become health and were a more vibrant part of our American life and were able to address many of the social problems that we often turn to government to address – that we would have far fewer things to fight about in the political space and it would end up reducing some of the tensions and hyperpartisanship that exists today. It's possible that that's true, Bill. I don't know it's true, but it's possible. One thing that um, produces rancor in our public discussion is a lack of uh, trust you know, the famous Fukuyama book called Trust. You know, it's we underestimate how important it is to be able to trust one another, that we're going to basically go by certain rules and so on. So if you don't trust institutions, if you feel isolated and angry and kind of misunderstood... And as I, as I, tr- as I vi- visit people in the country, I see... A, talk to a lot of people, a lot of people, especially where I'm from in the South, who feel who feel that way. They feel angry, really angry. Not just about one thing, but about things in general. And white hot anger at go- at government leaders and a sense that of their being disrespected and misunderstood in every possible way. And I don't know where that exactly where that comes from. It could be that they're just correctly assessing the truth of the situation. But I also think there's something else going on and I don't exactly know what it is. I'm really curious to try to try to figure it all out and I think that some of it might be this 
siloing effect where you mostly listen to other people in an echo chamber and you just hear the same thing over and over again and you're not engaging across the, the you know. Mm-hmm. Of course, that exists where I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan too, uh, where you just get this kind of liberal cocoon. So I'm not saying it's only on one side or the other, but I think maybe it's just a general trend. There was a there was a Pew study. Did you see this thing? It was a few weeks ago. There are now more people than ever who say they would be unhappy if their child married someone from the other political party. <laughs> like that's higher than it's ever been. Crazy. Well, let, let me pick back up on that. We made reference in passing to "It's a Wonderful Life" and George Bailey. Help us understand your appreciation for that film and especially for this concept of thrift. Because the next question that we had in our uh, uh, quiz earlier was uh, this question about over the course of a lifetime, how much will, will, would a thrifty person spend? And you correctly answered more than the average person. So help us understand thrift and how it relates to your appreciation for um, It's a Wonderful Life and George Bailey. Well, I love the movie like millions of people do. I just love the movie in every possible way. And I just love, I love the fact that he works for a building and loan association. He, he helps people own their own homes. And I love the scene in the, on the, when there's the run on the bank and he, he's about to leave with Mary on their honeymoon. He saved up all his money and, but instead they have to go and stop in the bank and they, the people are panicking because there's a, financial panic and Mary pulls out their honeymoon stash and says, how much do you need? And they give away all the money to their neighbors to, I'm just a total 100% sucker for this. And uh, the value of wise use of resources and what I would call thrift, it just permeates that movie at every possible level. I just love it. And the other movie I like that sums up my whole philosophy of life is um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Also, uh, Jimmy Stewart, where he says, what this country needs is a boys camp in, near Willet Creek. That, that's just, that's it. That's my whole, I mean, if you put together, if you, if you, Add a boy's town near Willett Creek, and how much do you need until Monday? That's my political, that's my, that's my worldview. That's everything I have to say about anything. We can all go home. <laughs> all right, Liz, give us a question. What if we focus less on a specific policy choice and focus more on what outcomes we want to achieve but might or might not agree on? Yeah, that's a good, that's a great tactic. I mean, not tactic in a bad way. That's a great strategy to promote a discussion. I like that idea quite a bit. Yeah. Okay, I've got an actual person asking a question. Great. Uh, just a clarification. The New York Times yesterday, the uh, Koch brothers' budget is $889 million for 2016, more than either party spent in the last election. Yeah, I, I saw that. I think they're going to get about 300 donors together to try to raise that sum. That would be that would be huge. Good clarification. Do you believe that attacking a person and making it personal is simply a tactic? Don't professional politicians use this as a tactic, a means to an end? Well, sometimes it is a, just a tactic, but I I think we've gotten to the point now where um, it's it also people just feel that you know they. Sometimes it's not a, a, a tactic. I've started collecting great insults. 
political insults of this nature. And one of the great ones is was directed against Henry Clay, the famous uh, politician from Kentucky in the 1840s. And one of his opponents said, pretending to uh, acknowledge Clay's brilliance, he said, um, like a rotting mackerel in the moonlight, he both shines and stinks. <laughs> That was good. <laughs> Steve's got a question. Can, can I just say what the, the idea that what you're saying is so horrible that you can't really that it's not a, that it must reflect a deeper flaw in your person. I don't think people are doing that only for tactical reasons. I think the rancor in our public discussion is so deep that many people actually believe this. In other words, that what, a, what, what is being proposed is so wrong that it must reflect the corruption of the person himself or herself and not simply a misguided idea. I don't believe that's merely tactical or cynical, although sometimes it is. If I can, you started this by talking about... Uh, how people communicate with each other, and you you mentioned that there would be the the person that sees the world as black and white and is absolutely certain in their opinion, and then you juxtaposed another kind of person that perhaps was more open to different kinds of truths. My question would be, how do those two people communicate with each other? How does the more open person try in a in a in a humble way and in a, an effective way? to try to communicate, to find middle ground, to find common ground with the person who sees things so black and white? It's a great question. Well, this is a very hard process. I, but I love it. You know, I've just spent years, this is what I, this is what I do. You know, this, this is what I do. So I really, lo- I, I, lo- I like to do this. I like the challenge of it. I think there's a certain number of people that need to be involved uh, I, I think the right number, the perfect number for a discussion of this nature is about between 15 and 20. Uh, I think you have to sit a certain way. I think that the physical arrangements are really important. But I think the trick of it and how it's chaired and what the question you're trying to ask is, is really important. And I do think that no media at all has to be, you have to, and you have to get through what I call station identification. Usually what people need to go through first is people feel a need often to say why their belief is different from other people's. That's what I call station identification. I'm not just me, but many people do. So you, have to go, you have to get through all that before you can start doing something interesting. And the interesting thing is, and this is what it, you have to do, even for the both for the people who believe that everybody's got a point or the people who don't believe that everybody's got a point, they have to accept membership in a common venture. There, there, it has to be not just expressing my opinion, but I'm agreeing with this group that we're going to try to do something together. We're going to try to achieve a joint goal, whether it's a statement we're going to sign our name to or a, some something we're going to try to, we're going to come up with an answer that will please the people in the neighborhood about the vacant lots or whatever the issue is. You, the, the, the transition is 
not just me saying, saying what my opinion is, which is easy to do. That's the simplest thing to do. The harder thing to do is to accept the burden and the responsibility of working with other people to achieve a joint goal. And if that goal has an intellectual dimension to it that involves research and discussion of facts and so on, even I've been in groups where where you can get uh, where this can happen, it, but it just takes time. It usually takes personal relationships developing. And if you want to use code words like liberals and conservatives, I don't think I think conservatives who have really strong opinions about principles and all that can be excellent, excellent contributors to this group, as long as everybody accepts what the goal is. Let me pick up on that, because one of the things that I've observed in attending many functions that you've hosted over the years and in seeing your writings and all the rest, I don't see you using terms liberal and conservative and progressive and dividing the world up in Republicans and Democrats. I don't see you talking a great deal about a lot of those common divisions the way many commentators and especially many people in the think tank or or people who are contributing to political discussions do. I, I mean, I hate those terms. Okay, I so, just hate so, 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 so my hunch I, is I was right. using them this tonight. Was not, this um, was not just an oversight or something on your part, but this is a reflection of some sort of animus or or or, or I, dislike I dislike so, those terms intensely and help us understand why because they're just terms of abuse so often or they're terms of in language like they term like you could they they're either usually like code for saying you're one of us are you one of us oh well yeah well you're you're in the group you know or you're not in the group Often it's just a term of abuse because people have a caricatured idea of what a liberal is. They say, oh, that's a liberal. Or a caricatured idea of what a conservative is. All these conservatives are, are in my world, the think tank world, the biggest trend has been the tendency to identify as liberal or conservative of think tanks. And I just think it's a horrible, horrible idea. And we, we just resisted completely. There was a guy, one of my teachers at college, a guy named Harvey Mansfield, a fairly, you know, is a political scientist. He told me that when he began teaching, he was teaching political science, right? Politics. He said that at the end of the year, after teaching an intense seminar to like seniors in college, at the end of the year, they might have an opinion or ask him or be express some thought as to whether he was a Democrat or a Republican. After having studied with them intensely for one year, he said today people read the outside reviews of his courses and sign up or don't sign up for his courses on the basis of a political description of him before the first course even takes place. So they've already filtered it all out. So that heaven forbid that a liberal student should be stuck with a conservative professor. So they try to work all that out. I just think that is just death. That is just every that should be resisted every day and in every way. And these labels that we use that are so crude and inaccurate, you know, every once in a while 
they can be okay. But generally speaking, in a public forum, or especially when talking about my differences with other people, I would never dream of using such terms. I have to say, when I first started coming to your stuff, I was it was I found this in some ways off-putting because I didn't have cues to let me know kind of with whom I should pay close attention and all the rest. And yet over time, I came to greatly appreciate it because it allowed, it seemed to me, for a much more open and free exchange of ideas because you weren't processing information, oh, that this is a, you know, this is a conservative speaking or this is a liberal speaking. You're instead just trying to wrestle with ideas and consider the propositions on their merits rather than whether or not they align with one tribal affiliation. Yeah, well, another. that's the other thing about the, the, these words. They tend to be signals for a whole cluster of issues that are alleged to hang together. So if you want to be a member in good standing of one of these groups, you have to believe a whole bunch of things that really don't have anything to do with one another. You have to have a certain belief on like 10 litmus test issues. And to me, this is just just terrible and uh, is the enemy of seriousness. All right. So Liz just reminded me that we need to give you an opportunity to talk about a... I don't know, pet topic of yours these days, something that you devoted a lot of serious thought to. And it fits in some ways with this whole discussion of of thrift and the wise use of resources and whatnot. And that is you've been very involved, I know, in your state um, and elsewhere on the whole question of gambling. And I know this is something that here in Florida we've spent some time debating and kicking around. And I'm just curious to know what you think or what you would encourage us to think about the question of gambling. Because I worry about the gambling issue because I, you know, I, I tend to be such a partisan on it. It's very hard for me to see the other side. It really is. So this so, is, so this is a, this is an issue where you fight I that fight. tendency yeah. to think in good and evil terms. I do. I do. Because my opinion, for what it's worth, is that, um, for the government to rely upon rigged games of chance, that take money out of basically lower-income people's pockets, whether it's the lottery or whether it's casinos, to, to, in the name of the citizens, gain money for the state in that way. I think it's unethical, bad government, wrong, should be resisted. I really, really hate that whole idea. And so it's very somebody, – somebody was saying, oh – you know, goods in conflict. It's very, I'm going to be in a debate tomorrow, day after tomorrow in St. Petersburg with a guy from the, uh, they call it the gaming industry. See, the, the contempt just, dri- you know, you can't even call it gambling. It's the gaming industry. You're going to undermine everything that you've so carefully. I know, I know, I know. I'm so glad I asked this question. I'm so, I'm so, but I'm so glad that I have to, I can just remind myself now. No, they're good, they're, they're valuable, you know, people, nobody makes anybody go to these casinos. They're very popular. So I have to kind of, you know, because I've become so, uh, uh, and by the way, I don't mind get pro, what I would call private recreational gambling. If you want to play poker and Bet on the Super Bowl with your friend, and I've, I've done that myself. So, but it's the government doing this to raise money, partnering with the industry in this way that I just find an abhorrent example of bad public policy. And I'm on a crusade about it. And pe- when I talk about it, people look at me and they kind of back away because, <laughs> you know, I kind of get that gleam in my, eye, you know, that kind of zealots look. You know, that, that people who become they're zealous about something. 
So I apologize. I'm going to be chilled in St. Petersburg tomorrow. But but that's that's my uh, that's my position on that right. subject. Uh, the final question that we had for you earlier was the question of, uh, according to the Village Voice, what was Kurt Cobain's all time favorite sitcom, which gave me an opportunity to show play my uh, cool card and show that yes, me and Kurt were appreciative. Of the same show, but you've you've written a very famous bestseller, Fatherless America. Now, what twenty years ago or so ago, um, where you describe what you saw as the, I think at the time most significant social problem in America is what you called it. Tell us, I mean, is that still your point of view? And kind of where do you see? You mentioned in the whole discussion about civil society, family life, family breakdown. Give us all a sense here of kind of how you see. That whole set of questions and ideas, and and what you think we ought to think about them. Gosh, that. <laughs> well, I mean, it, I mean, it's the most important thing I've done in my professional life for me personally, and it's the thing I spent the most time on. It's the thing I've said the most about. It's the thing I feel the most deeply about. I feel more deeply about that than I do about the gambling issue. I feel like this huge problem in our life in America today is you have a lot of uh, men who are who, who are you know not who are not raising their children and not being good partners to the mothers of their children and um, so among the uh, among the upscale Americans with with maybe many of us in this room might fit that somewhat category of more affluent people they're you would still have the likelihood that if you're a young person, you're going to be raised with your mother and your father, you know, living in and as a married couple in a somewhat stable home. But if you are in the other 60% of America, uh, lower middle class, blue collar, lower income America, the chances are that you will not be raised by your mother and father living together. And I just think it's the most I think this um, this terrible failure of uh, as our society of so many children growing up without their fathers and so many men separated from their children and the mothers of their children and just um, I think that's why we have a lot of young guys in jail uh, now prison. I mean, I I just think it's just one of those problems that drives so many other problems. And I, when I was a community organizer, I saw this uh, while I was living in community. You know, you see, you just see that it just breaks your heart. And so about the time I became a father myself, I, I just became a, kind of obsessed with this. And I spent about 10 or 20 years, I was like a fatherhood jukebox. I would just go over all around the country, everywhere. I would just, you know, anybody that would let me get up and give my little speech about how we had to do something about this. And that's how I got involved in the marriage issue and in and, and getting involved in groups like the National Fatherhood Initiative and others. So, no, it's very close to my heart. I still believe it's arguably, maybe I mean, arguably our most pressing social problem. And, um, and give me a sense of where you think the debate on that topic has gone. Because there was a time when your book first hit the shelves when there seemed to be a kind of budding social science consensus that maybe you were onto something that this was really something that uh, social thinkers, political leaders, others ought to be concerned about. 
do you think that's still the case? Do you think the consensus has grown, has waned, that the conversation has advanced or retreated? Is is this a topic that people want to hear you bring your jukebox to, to their town to talk about? Or is it a conversation that seems to have faded away? And and if it has faded away, is 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 the problem any better today than it was when you were writing about this initially or are we in as bad a shape or even potentially in worse shape than when you first began? I think we're in a little bit worse shape, although there has been some st- stabilizing among the up, upper income Americans, you know, the top, say, 25 or 30 percent of the population. There's been a lowering of the divorce rate. There's been a lowering of the – if you have a four-year college degree, if you're a woman and you have a four-year college degree – the chances are less than 10% of a, a child of yours being born outside of marriage. If you have a high school degree, it's more than 60%. That's a huge, I mean, so the class differences here are huge. But overall, I think it's, a, it's probably a little bit worse than it was in 1995 when I wrote the book. To me, the great tragedy in all this is that this has been a series of culture wars, you know, uh, over this whole issue. Because when it, in the 60s, you may remember when Daniel Patrick Moynihan put out his famous Moynihan report, the big issue was, okay, are we, are we pointing a finger of blame at African Americans? Is this some kind of racist thing, you know, black people can't have good families, you know? So there was a big, huge, this, this, this preoccupied us for years and years. And then in the 80s, a lot of it, the argument was, uh, is this sexist? Because are we trying to make sure that women are, are subordinate and, and kept in their place and can't escape abusive relationships? And this is about kind of patriarchal domination of women and gender roles. And, and so, so much of the argument about family and family stability was dominated, especially at the elite levels, by concerns raised by feminists and others about basically women's freedoms and women's rights. And then for the last 10 years or so, of course, it's been the rights of gays and lesbians to marry. That has just been the, there's been 99.99% of the discussion about marriage in America has been about that one topic. And I have been as involved as anybody in that topic. Uh, so I'm not uh, you know, I'm pointing the finger at myself, you know, but that was the issue. So if you think about it, for 50 years in America, we have fought one culture war after another about this issue of marriage over race, gender roles, and sexual orientation. And I be- hope, I Pray, literally pray, that we may have reached a point in America where we can now talk about this issue in a way that brings us together rather than divides us for the first time in 50 years. Because I don't think anybody is views this as a racially biased discussion anymore because the trends in white America are just where they were in black America. So, and women's equality is a given the barriers to gay marriage are falling down as we speak. Gay marriage is now a fact, constitutional jurisprudence of the nation. And so can we, in this new environment, speak about marriage in a unifying way 
and finally get to the point where we can uh, improve the some of these numbers about children who growing up with both of their parents. That that's if I if I have any gas left in the tank, if I have anything left to say, if I have anything left to do, I would like it to be on that more than any other thing because I, I just feel like that's such an important issue. And we now maybe, maybe have a time where we can put aside culture war over these other things as important as they are and talk about, you know, we now have new new voices for, you know, gay people are marrying now, you know, and, and, and uh, liberals now are cheering them and seeing marriage as a way to more opportunities. So there may be a way, and tradition, conservatives are now, if they can make their peace with gays and lesbians, there's a way to have a broader coalition now. So that's my hope. Okay. Liz has a question back here. I have the uh, dubious distinction of having produced the gubernatorial debate in Florida that um, is best known for fangate. There are all sorts of great stories that I'll tell you at some time, a long time from now. But the organization, which actually was the co-producer, is wrestling, as I am, mightily, with how to create a forum that will interest people, that will give citizens the information that they need that a candidate will go to and will participate in. I mean, they have gotten to the point where they absolutely will not agree on anything. At the end of of many debates that we've done, the moderator has said, what good can you say about your opponent? And they'll say something like, it's a beautiful tie he's wearing tonight. (laughs) I mean, they they refuse to say anything positive, and their handlers are telling them, you know, don't say that was a great idea that he or she had. And, and it is, I mean, it's terrible. It's <laughs> ruining the, the civil discourse and. Yeah. I, I'm really glad to hear you raise this and to push back a little bit even on this whole question because I'm curious to know, I mean, you would never say that the Lincoln Douglas debates or the Nixon Kennedy debates or those candidate debates serves no constructive purpose. Well, I mean, it, it, but those me, were the Lincoln Douglas debates uh, were an example of actual engagement. Those, if you read the, if you read yeah. those debates, they were carefully engaging one another point by point, and they brought in humor, humor, and uh, they were entertaining, but they were also very substantive, and um, that's what you're looking for. Well, here's what I'm curious to know: is how much of our problem today is a reflection? Not of the legitimacy of candidate debates, because truthfully, Simon and Garfunkel had it right. Yeah, there is a place here for candidate debates. We have to make decisions. We're either going to choose this candidate or that candidate, and we can't pretend that everybody's equally valid, okay? But it seems to me that part of the problem today, and tell me if you think this is right, that part of the problem today is that we have a permanent campaign, and that, and that, that when you speak about the dangers of continual debate, you're speaking really in some ways more about governing and about solving problems than you are about choosing candidates. Is that fair? Yeah, sure. During a campaign, of course, you magnify your differences with your opponent, and that's natural. So, yeah. But even, but see, even then, even then, 
There was, you, you would hope, my, my friend in the back, you, you would hope that there would be a kind of culture. You, you, you know, you, you wouldn't want to lecture them like children. You would hope that they would know this, that there would just be a kind of culture where they could acknowledge some things, you know, and have that be a sign of maturity. I don't how one I don't think there's a set of rules you could make for this and obviously they're not going to you know pretend that I mean obviously they're there to to put their best foot forward and to expose the weaknesses of the their, their opponent's point of view of course but but you would you would just hope that even under those conditions of campaigning that you wouldn't have this just ridiculousness. Just ridiculousness. I mean, who even pays any attention to these people anymore? It's gotten so ridiculous. I, I should probably mention here that I don't know if you remember our first slide, but um, it was the question about uh, are most disagreements a reflection of competing goods or a clash between good and evil? When my friend Nathan, our Teen Square assistant, put that slide together for the PowerPoint, he actually, I think, and I told him afterwards, I know this must have been a Freudian slip because he, in, instead of saying competing goods, put competing evils. And he, of course, had that picture of uh, an elephant and a donkey kind of butting heads. And I think too often today, that's exactly the kind of, you know, th- these are competing evils and not of goods. Liz is giving me a sign to say we are out of time, and so I hope that you will join me now in thanking my good friend David Blankenhorn for coming and being so generous with his time. Hi again. It's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed this program as much as I did. Thanks to David and Bill for giving us so much to think about as we move forward in our own lives. You know, I like to think of myself as a listener along with you. So if you're a regular listener like me, I wonder if you've started to see some common threads between these programs. I find this completely fascinating. While each program takes a different angle and each expert comes with their own experiences and shares different information, the common threads that are woven throughout are what I find myself thinking about pretty much every day as I watch things play out in the world around me. Here are a few that came up in this program. First, the importance of collaborating in a group activity. This is the one that's fundamental to our work at the Village Square, and it's why we break bread together during our programs. Next, about facts, how you can't lead with the facts, and facts alone don't work. We keep hearing this over and over. So why do we keep fighting over facts constantly? Maybe it's because we all think that we're right and sharing our wisdom with others is the intuitive thing to do. But as Amanda Ripley tells us in episode 40, High Conflict, doing the counterintuitive thing is often the way out of high conflict. Here's another one. The magic that can happen by asking questions. We've heard this in previous programs. But I love how David talks about asking the right question and asking the question properly. This is the one I'm working on right now in my own life. And I have to say, I think it's absolutely brilliant. 
but also a little hard to train myself to stop just making points all the time and to find the right questions instead. Usually, I think of a great question to ask after I'm done with the conversation. So this is taking some practice for me, but I can already see it working. Here's another one that we've heard before, but David takes further as well. The competing goods idea that he laid out. I love that. It reminds me of episode 39, Created Equal and Breathing Free, where we talk about the sometimes competing ideals of freedom and equality. But I find it so interesting how David has expanded this by pointing out that no matter the topic, there's usually good in each side. And I think this is really something we've lost sight of, in large part because of the way that we demonize the other side these days. Speaking of the other side, that's another one, the flaw of binary group identities, how we've organized the world into opposing teams, them and us, and we assign people to a group identity based on their team, not based on what they actually think. This is the first fire starter that Amanda Ripley talks about in episode 40. And the last example that I'll share with you, although I know I could come up with more, this one has me really thinking the part about the internal debate within our own selves about how sometimes when we're arguing so hard against the other side, it might be because we have unresolved conflict within ourselves over the issue at hand. Hmm, that sure is interesting. And I think he's on to something. This meshes with what we've heard before about finding out what's beneath the conflict, what it's really about. But once again, David gives us something else to think about. You know how we often act and speak without even fully understanding our own selves? Like when we get defensive, we can so quickly jump to just how to win. And the more we try to win at all costs, the less our arguments make sense. Have you ever gone so far with this that privately you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, what am I even arguing about? I'm over here raising my hand, but haha, you can't see me. So obviously, I think David and our previous guests are brilliant, and they've really figured things out. And I don't know about you, but for me, it takes the repetition and the reminders and hearing these concepts from different perspectives for it to really sink in and for me to find ways to implement these changes in my own life. I'm thrilled to be on this journey with you. So thanks for joining us for another thought-provoking discussion. We'd like to give a big shout out to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free, which will air right here on Village Squarecast through the end of the year. Also, thanks to Carrie Roth and Wellington Meffert for helping to make these programs possible through their generous donations. We invite you to subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to podcasts. And to stay up to date with all that's happening at the Village Square, including our current season of programming that's now underway, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to American Values in the Age of Hyperpartisanship with David Blankenhorn. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. 
it changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast.